Okay, um, so we're going to finish up. We're going to finish strong and be done on time. I'm feeling, feeling good. Uh, so we're going to talk about uh, cirrhosis and uh, treatment in patients with cirrhosis and get a little bit more into some data with decompensated cirrhosis if we have uh, time. So we're going to leave about 10 minutes at the end, so maybe aim for 150. Okay. Um, okay, so RT is 48-year-old female. Uh, with hep C that was diagnosed 20 years ago. Uh, history is significant for uh, intravenous drug use, um, alcohol for 15 years, none now, fatigue, loss of energy. Uh, she had an upper GI bleed about a year ago. Uh, she saw a commercial where people born between 1945 and 65 were riding horses and talking about being cured of their hep C. <laughs> I'm not allowed, I'm not saying any names. Um, and she is interested in treatment. Um, the ALT is 54, the AST is 68, Billy's 2.7, Albion is 3.2, INR is 1.4, um, platelets notably are 82,000, she's a genotype 1A. Okay, so which of the following statements are not true? Um, she likely has cirrhosis, she needs an upper endoscopy, she needs HCC screening, she should not be treated uh, with an NS5A inhibitor, um, and she should be screened for hep B and HIV. One person. This is easy. You guys aren't going to get, I know you're going to get all this right. Okay. Whoa. Can I go back? Okay, so um, answer four is correct. Uh, this was a trick. Um, just seeing if anyone was confused about when and when not to use uh, protease inhibitors, the NS5A inhibitors are safe in patients with cirrhosis. Um, and we do think she has cirrhosis. We'll go into that a little bit, a little bit more. Uh, so we kind of showed you this slide already, uh, and I want to briefly run through just what, the, what decompensation looks like. Again, even if it's not appropriate for the clinical setting that you're in, if you're not seeing these folks, you know, if you're taking care of patients with liver disease and maybe well-compensated cirrhosis, you need to know what decompensation looks like and you need to know what that means to, to be able to identify it. Um, so we'll do a, a quick tour through here. Um, so uh, it's, uh, variceal bleeding is a high uh, mortality cause of mortality for patients that have cirrhosis and who decompensate. You'll see it in up to 80% of people as they develop more and more portal hypertension. They'll develop uh, larger varices under more pressure. Um, and importantly, even of those patients that, um, that survive, a lot of them will re-bleed. Um, so if you're on the primary care end of a patient who had a variceal bleed, um, what a, a, a very common scenario is they come in, they get treated, they're doing fine, they get discharged, and there's no plans for a repeat endoscopy. 100% of these patients need a repeat endoscopy because they're, they will almost universally re-bleed if they're not managed. They always need a retreatment. Um, and unfortunately, some of these patients this carries a large uh, mortality risk. Okay, so next thing we're going to talk about, don't cry, liver, it'll be okay, uh, is ascites. The tears of the liver is how we call it in the liver world. Um, no, I just made it. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> the liver is crying, and now there's ascites. Um, but it kind of is because it is another sign of high portal hypertension. Um, 
This can happen in up to 50% of patients that develop cirrhosis. Remember that graph that I showed you before of mortality, how that really spikes up once someone develops ascites. And ascites, you know, it might not seem like that big of a deal for the patient. They might have a little distension, but that should be a real sign to you as their provider that, you know, this is a sick patient because they have a lot of portal hypertension. And this is sort of what it looks like. So this is an ultrasound. Here's the skin. Uh, this is bowel kind of floating on mesentery, and all this black area is ascites, so that would be uh, a very easy way to diagnose it through ultrasound. Um, sometimes you do need ultrasound as a practical standpoint, um, especially patients that have obese abdomens, all the physical exam stuff you learn in school isn't all that easy when there's a lot of, um, when there's a lot of fat tissue there, so you, you sometimes need to do a quick ultrasound to really verify if it's ascites or not. And then the last thing I wanted to briefly touch on is hepatic encephalopathy. Um, so this is confusion that results in patients that have cirrhosis that are beginning to decompensate. It happens for two different reasons. Um, the first reason is you need your liver to clean out a lot of uh, the neurotoxins that naturally occur in our blood, ammonia being the biggest player. Um, and when you have synthetic dysfunction, that's not doing that job very well. And the second thing is, is that um, naturally we develop shunts around the liver because the blood is trying to find the easiest pathway back to the heart. Um, so some of that blood gets shunted away from the liver, um, and that shunting from the portal circulation to the systemic circulation is what can cause uh, the, the blood's basically bypassing the liver. So that can cause confusion as well. There's two mainstays of therapy. Uh, one of them is lactulose, or a, a non-absorbable disaccharide, uh, or um, also antibiotics like uh, rifaximin, uh, which kills uh, ammonia-producing bacteria in the gut, which can reduce encephalopathy. An old um, kind of uh, wives' tales, you're not supposed to give patients with encephalopathy protein because thinking about all the nitrogen and the protein will make the uh, ammonia levels higher. We know that that's actually not true. Um, so I'll still see patients, and maybe you guys have too, that say, oh, my doctor told me to lay off all the protein, and, and then they're actually just incredibly emaciated. It turns out cirrhosis is a very catabolic state. Um, and you actually need more protein in order to make up for the, the catabolic uh, metabolism that you have because you can't process proteins appropriately, uh, especially when you have less uh, synthetic dysfunction. Um, really important just from a practical standpoint um, is two things that I always ask every patient that I see that has cirrhosis because, again, remember, uh, compensated to decompensated is a, is a spectrum, right? It's not like they just like decide one day they're decompensated. There's little hints of decompensation that you really need to tease out when you're talking to patients. Um, I always ask patients um, about driving. Remember this? Oh, those, remember the driver's ed cars? That's like the brakes on the passenger side. Just as a reminder here, so um, they've done a lot of really interesting studies of patients that have encephalopathy or even very minimal stages of encephalopathy, and you, you see. Your cirrhotic patient, like, just got into a car accident, or they're, you know, they're, they've got a lot of fender benders, you know, something to ask about because reaction time will slow down in the early stages of encephalopathy, so that's something um, to really be careful about. Kind of opens up a little bit of a Pandora's box about allowing patients with cirrhosis to drive and kind of how much uh, investigation should we do and, and are we sort of, you know, there's some legal aspects that come into that as well. Um, and then this is just to, to remind me, ask your patients with cirrhosis about sleep, okay? So one of the first things that happens with encephalopathy, you know, clearly when a patient comes in, if you walk in, their, in the office and they're confused, they're somnolent, you know, it's very obvious. But one of the first things that they may complain of is sleep-wake reversal. So they'll say, I'm 
sleeping during the day and I'm awake at night. And the biggest pitfall is to actually give those patients a script for a sleep aid or Ambien or something like that because that's actually going to make their encephalopathy worse. So the first presentation is sleep-wake cycle. Try treating them for encephalopathy and that might actually get their sleep-wake cycle better and get them sleeping better. So something to keep in mind. Okay. So um, moving on with this patient, as part of her workup, uh, a right upper quadrant ultrasound is done, uh, which showed this. Okay. So a mass is noted in a cirrhotic appearing liver. The next step would be to biopsy it, uh, get a triple phase CT scan, get a PET scan, or repeat ultrasound in three months to confirm stability. What would you guys do? Okay, some good answers. So the correct answer here is uh, doing a triple phase CT scan. Uh, and we're gonna go over uh, why that is and why that would be uh, a better move than getting a biopsy or uh, a PET scan. Okay, so hepatocellular carcinoma, I think this is really important to think about because this is not something that occurs when somebody decompensates. This occurs in setting of anybody with cirrhosis. So we've talked about referring patients when they decompensate and them needing transplant. But, you know, if when, as we're treating hepatitis C in more and more centers and more and more venues, um, we've talked a lot today about treating well-compensated cirrhotics, and I think most people agree this is something that does not take place in the specialist's office. Um, but what goes along with that is everybody that has cirrhosis needs to be screened for HCC. And importantly, even the patients that you cure that have cirrhosis, so you do your workup, they're cirrhotic, you cure them, even once they're cured, they still need to be getting HCC screening or liver cancer screening every six months indefinitely. I hope that in a couple of years there's data that comes out that allows us to sort of risk stratify patients a little bit more because they probably don't all need it. Um, but at this point in time, the standard of care is to keep screening them. So, and that also kind of uh, supports the point of why you need to know beforehand what they are because you need to know whether you got to screen them indefinitely or not. Um, so uh, anyone that's cirrhotic, of course, can develop HCC. The exception here um, also is patients, some patients with hepatitis B are also at risk even in the absence of cirrhosis. Um, and, and HCC is a little bit different because you can make the diagnosis just based on cross-sectional imaging. And I'm gonna show you an example of that. AFP, you know, some people are tumor marker people, some aren't, some people find it helpful, but just know, it's just like every other tumor marker out there, you just have to, you can get it, you just need to know how to use it. None of them are diagnostic in isolation. Um, so uh, about 20 to 40% of people that have an HCC won't be AFP producers. So, you know, just because the AFP is normal doesn't mean you can blow it off. Um, and there are 20 to 30% of people without HCCs may have an abnormal AFP. AFP gets elevated with cell turnover. So all of our patients with hep C have some degree of cell turnover because they have some inflammation of their liver. So you'll see in a, if you see a patient with hep C and someone just orders an AFP and it's mildly elevated, that does not diagnose them with HCC. That just might be their normal physiology in the setting of hep C. Having said that, an AFP of 20,000 is cancer. I mean, it's just like every other tumor marker. So when you get these really, really high ones, you can't explain it with just normal cell turnover. So something to keep in mind. So this is how we can make the diagnosis. It's kind of a cool thing. 
So when we order, a, if you're ordering cross-sectional imaging on a patient with cirrhosis, you always have to make sure you order it either, either as a triple phase CT or a liver protocol CT, okay? And what this kind of uh, phasing of the CT, and the same thing for an MRI, and what this does is exploits the fact that all liver cancers, hepatocellular carcinomas, are predominantly supplied by the hepatic artery. So remember, your liver has the portal vein that goes into the liver and the hepatic artery. So tumors in the liver that are HCC are sort of engulfed just by the hepatic artery. So then they do two phases of the CT. Um, when they do the, uh, this is the arterial phase, you can see the aorta lighting up here, and the HCC is very bright right here in this patient, so this is lighting up, and this is obviously in the setting of a cirrhotic liver, there's some ascites around, a big spleen, and then they'd call, they do what's called the portal venous or washout phase, so all, first all the, the blood goes through the artery, and then the next phase, all the blood is going through the portal vein. The portal vein is now what is lighting up the rest of the liver, but all of the contrast has already washed out of the arterial phase. So it lights up during the arterial phase and it goes dark during the venous phase. So if you see a mass like that in the appropriate clinical setting, like a patient with cirrhosis, you've made your diagnosis. There's only one thing that does that and that's an HCC. So you'll see us, we'll transplant patients for HCC that have never had a biopsy because this is so uh, pathognomonic for what's going on. Um, so, you know, I think that more and more of us hopefully are going to be taking care of patients with cirrhosis and treating them. Um, I think what's happening, I'm sure, in your clinics as well, is that we have a lot of thankfully, I call them thankfully boring visits of these patients that have cirrhosis and we've treated them and they're cured and they just kind of do well. I mean, their chances of dying of liver disease go down dramatically. Um, but there's things we should think about when you're seeing these patients and if you're the one that's following them up. Um, everyone with, uh, with cirrhosis should probably get an EGD at some point to screen for varices. Um, this does not need to be something that gets in the way of their treatment. So if you're in a, a setting where the, the wait time is six months to get an EGD or to get into GI, don't wait on their treatment to do that. Go ahead and treat them. There's nothing they're going to find on the EGD that's probably going to change what you're going to do. Make sure the standard of care is just an ultrasound every six months. So that's, the, that's what you need to do. Um, it depends on uh, insurance and lots of other things in my clinic, and this is just me personally. I flip-flop with cross-sectional imaging every six months, so I'll do a CT or an MR. Six months later, I do an ultrasound. Six months later, I do a CT and MR. It kind of <laughs> splits the difference with cost and gives you a little bit more sensitivity. Um, every time I see a patient with cirrhosis, which, you know, depending on how they're doing, I calculate a MELD score. So remember from before we talked about, you know, how are they doing? Do they, you know, do they, do I need to think about transplant? Are they stable? Like, what can you tell them at the end of the visit of how their liver health is? And then the obvious things, you know, be on the, on the lookout for evidence of decompensation. Okay, so um, the big questions in hep C and cirrhosis are what are the treatment options, uh, which we've talked about a little bit, who should be treated by hepatologists, and when is a patient too sick to be treated? So DW is a 55-year-old with 1B hep C, who's naive to treatment, staging via fiber scan reveals cirrhosis. She has no evidence of decompensation. EGD is normal. Uh, her child's classification is A, her MELD score is eight. So this patient should be referred to a transplant center. Um, if she is cured, she can discontinue HCC screening. Ribavirin will be necessary for most regimens in cirrhosis, and GP for 12 weeks would be a safe and effective regimen to treat her. She 
she is cirrhotic, she's a child's A cirrhotic. Okay, so most of you guys got this right. So um, this is somebody that uh, is well compensated, and GP for 12 weeks would be a uh, would be a good regimen for her. Okay, so um, comparing compensated cirrhotic cirrhosis versus uh, non-cirrhotic patients, the treatment options are essentially the same. Uh, there may be a little bit of difference in duration of therapy, so you really need to know going in whether they're cirrhotic or not. I'm going to show you an example. Uh, we've talked about this a lot. Protease inhibitors are okay in your child's A patients. Um, and usually fine to be treated uh, really anywhere. Um, so when you go to the guidelines, um, this is your one-stop shopping to find everything. And I just put, a, I just put a, an example of a genotype 1A patient here because I think this is, you know, this is helpful um, that you can see, it, you know, sometimes they're the same and sometimes they're different. You know? And you can read a whole lot about all the trials that led up to it and there's, there is a method to the madness. Um, but you can see notably here for GP, if your patient was not cirrhotic, you would be giving eight weeks of therapy. And if you are cirrhotic, you'd be giving 12. And I think, you know, number one, from a, from a, from a patient-centered standpoint, you know, you want to give your patient the right medication. You don't want to shortchange them or give them too much. Um, I think from a practical standpoint, I know when I work with primary care providers to do this, the worst thing that happens is you have someone on your staff or you're the person that, you know, throws in all the paperwork, spends two hours filling out the prior authorization. And if you didn't look this up and you're like, oh yeah, GP is always eight weeks, they're just, you're just gonna get a denial. And then you just threw away like two hours of work doing this whole thing because they, they know and they're looking for it. So if you're, you know, if you're trying to get medications paid by insurance, um, that can be a real, that's not so fun to spend all that time uh, just because something easy like this. So make sure you look it up. You know, we all work on these, these guidelines. I mean, I, I, I don't know about you guys. I still look it up because I feel like I, I, you know, we talk about this all the time, and sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, it is 12 weeks, so it's definitely <coughs> worth doing. Um, Post-treatment management, I think, is important to talk about uh, what to do. I think I kind of covered that um, with making sure those patients get uh, surveillance. Um, so, again, showing you the same slide I showed earlier. What happens after SVR? And it's really kind of an exciting time in hep C because before, we, this is all new data for us when we were trying to treat these, now treating these really, really sick patients with cirrhosis because in the past when we used interferon, you wouldn't touch a decompensated cirrhotic patient with interferon, it would really make them much worse. So now we're starting to see that we have these safe medications. What can happen when we start treating these patients? And it's pretty um, exciting. So what happens when you just treat a patient with, cirrhotic, with cirrhosis? It's kind of all good things. Um, you can see the blue is uh, patients with SVRs, and they, the gold is without SVRs. So all-cause mortality is improved. Developing liver cancer is much less common. Liver fa failure is zero. So look here. This number doesn't go to zero, okay? So that's why we still screen those patients. Even though, So you can tell your patient that you've cured with cirrhosis. I tell them, I say, it's very unlikely you're going to have, if they're well compensated, I say, it's really unlikely you're going to have a liver problem for the rest of your life. But we're going to do things like screen you for cancer just to be on the safe side. And I think that kind of, that kind of covers it. Is that perhaps the same for whether someone has 
It is not. These are, those are all well-compensated patients. Yeah, because when you get into decompensating, I'll show you, actually, I have a graph to show you at the end that will, <coughs> it kind of depends on how decompensated they are of how much benefit you get. I put this slide up here to sort of kind of get rid of some of these issues. So um, about two years ago, there was some controversy um, whether there was a study, and this is the study that showed that some patients were being treated for hep C that had a prior history of liver cancer were having recurrence during their hepatitis C treatment, okay? And there was a thought, well, is there something about the drug or something we're doing to the immune system uh, that is causing these really significant recurrence? Um, there's a lot of picking apart of these studies, but I think it's safe to say that there's been a lot of bigger cohorts that have been looked at that hep C, uh, HCC, uh, hep C therapy does not uh, make HCC worse or cause recurrence. I think that's kind of now a known thing. So just in case you hear that or a patient asks about it, that's largely been disproven, so we don't really, really worry about that too much. Um, okay, so WR is a 62-year-old with genotype 2 hep C, non-responder to interferon-based therapy. She has no encephalopathy and mild ascites, controlled with a low dose of Lasix and Haldactone. Billy is 2.7, Allianz 2.2, INR is 2. What is the, this is hard. What is the patient's child's classification? I know, I know. Just, I know, it's kind of me. Yes. Just, just ballpark it. Just ballpark it. Okay, you guys are right. So I would have picked a BSC without, without checking it out. Um, and we'll, we'll, we're going to show you the calculator in a second for this one. Um, so remember, the child's uh, classification, calculate the, this on people with, um, with cirrhosis. This is the one from the University of Washington. So I think I, think I did this for this patient. So it, it's, a, it's a low C, high B. Okay, so 10 points, and it tells you this is somebody that has pretty severe uh, liver disease. Okay, so knowing that, would you, number one, treat this patient? Uh, number two, refer to a transplant center. Three, arrange for palliative care hospice services. I guess you could pick one, which would be would you. So if you guys are really sleeping, you just pick would you. some brave souls here. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think it depends on who you are, where you are. Um, in general, Bs and Cs probably should be referred to transplant centers. Having said that, if you're somebody that has a lot of experience and you've been, you have, you know, comfort with treating sicker patients like this, or you're in a setting, I've, I have uh, folks that, that I help treat that live way out and kind of some pretty rural areas of Illinois, and they're like, yeah, I mean, they're not going to drive 450 miles to come get treated, so, you know, we do, we do what we can. But the recommendation um, from the guidelines is that the patients with B or child's class B or C should be referred to a medical practitioner with expertise in that condition. So that could be you um, if you have some experience doing this, but ideally in the liver transplant center because there are some 
considerations of liver transplant and appropriateness for liver transplant you want to have done before um, you start working towards treating this patient. I agree, and, and in most cases, um, you know, so if they don't have insurance, they're probably not, you know, because a lot of this conversation is, does transplant make sense for this patient? Um, so patients without insurance, patients um, that have other comorbidities that would preclude, treat, that would preclude um, transplant, these are folks that you're going to want to treat because I'm going to show you some data that there's a fairly good chance they're going to get better from the treatment even when they're really decompensated. But you know, if they are a transplant candidate, sometimes it makes more sense just to move towards transplant rather than treating. So that's why you would want that, you would want that um, expertise. I think we've kind of killed this. We've talked about that a lot. So we've, we've shown that quite a bit. Um, all right, so treatment in decompensated cirrhosis. So this isn't just the regular cirrhotic patients. This is decompensated. They have their special uh, area on the guidelines. So don't just click on cirrhotic. This is decompensated. Uh, does treatment work? Um, and it does work. Um, this is uh, looking at child's B and C's uh, that are treated with cefosibir and uh, lidipasvir, uh, and you can see pretty high response rates. Adverse events, although on first glance adverse events are high, that's because these are like really sick people, but adverse events uh, related to treatment are actually quite low. So these were very well tolerated drugs in this population. Um, in decompensated cirrhosis is a study that's looking at cefosibir and valpatosvir. Um, and these two also uh, had high response rates. No notice I'm not giving you data for GP because that has a protease inhibitor, um, although I think there might be some coming down the pipe, but, um, but not yet. Um, so this is treatment in decompensated cirrhosis, and this is just what the guidelines say, whether they're ribavirin eligible or ineligible. And you can see quite a bit different than our regular cirrhotic patients, so it's good to know whether they have decompensation or not. Uh, soft lead and soft valpasvir, 24 weeks if the ribavirin ineligible for most genotypes. Uh, and if they are ribavirin eligible, um, you can treat them for 12 weeks with ribavirin. Big picture is that when they're decompensated, they're going to be a little harder to treat. This is a category of just hard, hard to treat, probably the, a worse response rate. So you either extend therapy for these patients or you add ribavirin as a sort of a crutch to kind of get them uh, uh, cured. Okay, so this is kind of, we had a couple questions leading up to this. So what happens when you treat this? I think this is kind of the most exciting thing about uh, treating some of these patients because we get to see real outcomes. Um, so this is what happens to child scores or CTP score in decompensated patients after SVR. So what do you tell these folks? You say, well, there's a chance you, you know, so you're a child's B patient. There's a chance you're just going to stay a child's B, okay? And that's okay, and that, at least you don't have to have C anymore. But there's about a 50% chance of all comers that you're actually going to get better. So your child's classification is going to get better, meaning you're, you know, to, it's not a real word, but you'll sort of recompensate from decompensate. You'll like kind of get better. And then there is a chance that, um, you know, your disease is too far along and you're still going to get worse. You're not getting worse because of the treatment. You are going to get worse either way, and the treatment's just not going to help you. Um, there's a typo here. So this is... Um, if your MELD score is, uh, yeah, if your MELD score is greater than 15, so if you're very, very sick, um, about half of patients will get better, but a third will still get worse, okay? So these are patients, again, when I look at these folks about thinking about transplant, if a MELD is 35 and they're sick and they're in the ICU, 
this isn't somebody that I think is going to get better with treatment. You, you better, your efforts are better spent working them up towards transplant. However, um, if you see a patient with a meld of 12, um, and they're like, well, I'm getting kind of close. I might need a transplant. I mean, these are the patients we can treat because chances are, I mean, I'd rather be treated and never need a transplant than, than you know, just let it go and get a transplant. So 81% of patients are going to get better if you're able to catch them before their MELD score is 15. So that's really, that's really great. And I think it all kind of culminates on this, which is one of my favorite graphs for this talk, because what does that mean in real life that we've actually seen? Um, so these are the different causes of requirements for liver transplant. This is uh, NASH and alcoholic liver disease, which are both increasing. But right here, so hep C has always been uh, the leader in transplant. And starting in two, 2013, ironically, exactly when the DAAs started becoming available, we started to see a sharp decline in wait list addition. So people needing to go on to transplant list with hep C as their reason for uh, needing a transplant, it's going down and it's just plummeting. And I think that really has to do with this. It's because we're treating patients with decompensated cirrhosis, they're getting better, and they're not needing transplants. So that's really all, all you can ask for. Um, so what do you tell patients? Um, you tell patients, like this is just another way of looking at this, uh, you'll either, depending on how sick you are, you'll either get better, you'll stay the same, there is still a chance they could get worse. Um, so the take-homes uh, for this is hep C and, for hep C and cirrhosis, uh, low meld, child's A, these are definitely okay uh, to treat in, in an experienced provider, but someone in a non-transplant setting. Um, outcomes, you know, if you're treating a patient with cirrhosis, whether they're compensated or decompensated, they are very likely to get better, um, and you're going to make, uh, you don't need to treat that many patients to see uh, an impact on some improvement of their health. Uh, and then remember, all patients with cirrhosis treated or not treated are going to need HCC screening. Uh, in one in one setting or another. I think that's all I have. Yeah. Since they're using, it sounds like they're going to be using quite a bit of fiber scan. Mentioned the fiber scan platelet criteria for EGD. Or yeah, you know. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I think I think you so initially the recommendation all patients with cirrhosis can should get an EGD, and I think that that's probably I know. So most of us do that, and I think it's easy for me because I. I do the EGD, so it's an easier transition. The patients just can get it pretty easily. But there is a criteria that if a fibro scan is less than 22 kilopascals and the platelets are, gr are greater than 150, they're very unlikely to have portal hypertension that would cause varices, and you can actually forego the EGD. Um, and I can tell you in my practice, I use that for patients that I don't want to scope. Because, I mean, not because I'm like mad at them, but because, no, because like, you know, so if you have bad COPD or you have a cardiac history or you have other comorbidities that would make even an EGD kind of a dangerous procedure for that patient, I use that criteria to, to not do it. I, anecdotally, I've seen patients that have those, that would, that would fit into the don't scope phase, the don't scope, and they have varices, so. Uh, yeah, sometimes. So, so it's not, it's not perfect. But I think that if, you're, if you do have a fiber scan, and I think, I think I'm glad you brought it up, um, I think you know, the vast majority of the time you're going to be right and you're, you wouldn't need, to do the, wouldn't need to do the EGD. Are there recommendations on um, EGD screening, like if it's like once a year, like once a month, does it change if they have a history of doing? Yeah, so there's, there's definitely recommendations. 
hopefully, and from practical terms, the person that does the endoscopy should make a recommendation. I mean, that, that's part of the responsibility of the endoscopist. And it's kind of, every once in a while you'll get a report that says, like, follow up with your GI doctor, which, which really isn't there. So for patients that have bled, they should, and they get banded during that first time, they need EGDs sequentially until their varices are completely eradicated. So that's like every couple of weeks they will get them. Um, then it tends to be a little bit of a judgment call. So if they have small varices, it's usually one, every one to two years. If they have larger varices, then it, it could be even, even shorter than that. Um, there are some guidelines that say if they have varices and they've never bled, then you never need to do it again. Um, so there are some, it depends on, on the guidelines. So it, it kind of depends. The other thing to keep in mind with varices, so if you're seeing the patient, you're thinking, well, do I need to, do I need to screen this patient? Their level of decompensation predicts how likely they are to bleed. So if I see a patient who has no, I scope them, they have no varices, and then the recommendation is three years, just scope them again in three years, and they come back six months later and they're jaundiced and have ascites, that tells me physiologically now they have worse portal hypertension. Something has happened, whatever it is. I would actually scope that patient again just because they've developed ascites and, and, and some other kind of sign of that. Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that brings up Christy's point, which is that, you know, if you do have access to a uh, fiber scan and, and a platelet count, you know, using those cutoffs can actually, you know, as resources, right? So if you have one patient with a, with a fiber scan of 25 and the platelets are 30, I mean, that, you might want to put all your effort into really finding some place for that patient to go, and then you have the 10 others that fit, you may not, you know, you, may, you might not have, need the bandwidth for that. That's how I would approach it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Can I check an ammonia level? Does it help? I don't think it does. The only patients I think an ammonia level helps. Okay, there's two criteria. There's two. This is, and we debate this a lot in our group. Uh, in acute liver failure, an ammonia level is helpful because it can help predict cerebral edema. So that's a different patient. That's like a patient with a Tylenol overdose or something like that. I personally think it's helpful to check an ammonia level if you have a patient that shows up and is confused and cirrhotic and you don't know if it's dementia or you don't know. And I think if an ammonia level is either normal or really, really high, it kind of point me in one direction. The one thing that I think most people agree on is never to, you don't have to check serial ammonia levels like in the hospital, like checking an ammonia level every day or check it on, on, uh, in a clinic visit. I don't really think it's that helpful. And then one thing I'll say about an ammonia level is make sure it's done at the right place. So I had this, uh, an anecdote, I had this nice old lady and her doctor checked an ammonia level and it was like 300. And then this doctor is just like killing this old lady with lactulose and she's going like 20 times a day. And it turns out that ammonia levels need to be kept on ice and then processed in a certain way. And, um, and she was getting the lab drawn in like some like strip mall somewhere and they would draw the lab and just throw it in a bucket and then it would sit all day so the ammonia was falsely elevated and she didn't even like really have liver disease, you know, and here's this poor lady was having like months and months of diarrhea and then we just, all we did is we sent it like at our lab like in the hospital and it was like normal and then she stopped and so, yeah.
So you can get into trouble with ammonia levels. Do you expect your LFTs to completely normalize in your cirrhotics? And what, do you have a threshold for looking for an additional cause of liver disease, like if their AST remains at some level? Or? Yeah, so I, I would start by in non-cirrhotics, I would expect them to normalize completely. And I think that's a really important point. So if you have a patient that's not cirrhotic, I don't work them up for other causes of liver disease until after I've treated their hep C because most nine times out of 10, the, the numbers are gonna normalize and they're good to go. And then you don't waste all your time and effort doing a bunch of other tests. If they don't normalize, um, then, then I look for other things. Sometimes it's alcohol, fatty liver, things like that, but that you should probably have some explanation. Cirrhotic patients are a little different because uh, you, know, you can see just mild elevations of AST and ALT even after cure, and I see that quite a bit. I think the key for those patients is you just wanna make sure you've ruled out anything that you can fix um, so those are the patients. I usually, of course, you, you should have already looked for viral hepatitis and other things like that. But I'll do like a, a sort of a truncated evaluation and look for like autoimmune hepatitis, things like that. Talk to them a little bit more about NASH, make sure they're not drinking, things like that to make sure that because, but you can't, in the absence of everything else, I, I do see my cirrhotics have, yeah, and by mild, we're talking like 50s, 60s, not hundreds and things like that. studies going on, nothing that's been terribly promising. There were a couple kind of therapeutic vaccines that looked maybe improve immune responses a little bit. I think uh, Andrew Cox at Johns Hopkins, they're kind of doing most of the studies. I think there's one ongoing right now, but I don't think there's anything on the doorstep that I've heard of. I mean, I think we're still years and years yeah. away. Do we have closing comments or anything? Or who's are you? I think Christy. I think you're closing. You haven't been. You know. Yeah. You've been. Okay. So. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for sticking with us all day. It's really exciting to see you all here, and um, I hope you've learned some things today that you can take back and share with others. And and certainly, I was really impressed with the work you're all doing here and, and um, in such, I think, what are challenging circumstances of getting things paid for and getting them done. And so you should all be so proud of yourselves and I'm so impressed. Um, so if you want to get some credit for today for um, towards your MOC or other um, uh, accreditation um, standards, you can follow the steps here. So go ahead and do that. Is there more? Let's see. Here's the pharmacy and nursing as well. And it's all email. And then uh, in a day or two, this will all be available online if you'd like to see the slides and things. And, and feel free to share those with others as well or use them to teach others. We, we would love for you to do that. 
So um, for further instructions, here's the website once again. And ah, Tennessee, there is a um, one month outcome survey. I didn't know about that. So your feedback's important to us. So please do that as well when you get that survey. And if you wanna see more, there are certainly um, plenty of other workshops on the website. And also this is a not-for-profit organization that accepts donations. So here are the last upcoming webinars of 2018. Um, yeah. All right. There it is. Forgot about that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody put it on your calendar. Oh, no. Especially December, Andrew. What is December 4th? <laughs> put that one on your calendar, Andrew. Okay. And then there's um, new t also available some topics that may interest you in topics in antiviral medicine. Covered more there. And then the full day HIV courses are also always really. Um, awesome. Come visit me in New York, Monday, March 18th. You must email me if you come to this. And then uh, others that may be a little more convenient there as well. So thank you. Thank you, everyone. So I just want to thank the speakers so much for being here. Uh, thanks for taking time out of your scheduled travel with the organizers from IS to travel to help facilitate the workshop. Uh, some of our folks at the health department as well as our AIDS education training center for being some of our local partners. And I actually want to thank each of you for taking time out of your day uh, to be here. I think the great news is that it's a small but very invested group. Uh, as uh, Christy was saying, that I think the level of knowledge here is actually uh, very good, especially when we're saying we're not, there aren't infectious disease doctors or uh, gastroenterologists in the audience. This is uh, primary care, pharmacy, OBGYNs, and other groups uh, who are contributing, and that's fantastic. Uh, and we want to continue so please uh, let us know. I think Dr. Vincent and I will be available for any additional questions. Dr. Marks and Dr. Ross need to uh, get to the airport uh, very quickly. So, but thank you all for the work you're doing. Please take this information back to your groups and to your institutions and share for those folks who weren't able to deal with this today. So thank you again. Thank you.